Hello and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. My name is David Ward and coming up this month, Venetian Follies, Veronan Controversy and a Climactic Oratorio. We also have an exclusive interview with the conductor John Andrews. I'm joined in the Chapel FM studio this month by the conductor Helen Harrison. Good morning, Helen. Good morning. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for making the uh, the very long journey over the, the Pennines this morning. Yeah, I have my passport to hand <laughs> as, a, as proud Lancashire lass. And I was letting, not too many problems. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much. It's been stamped as well. Oh, I good. just hope they're going to let me out. And uh, over the line from London uh, is the director, Emma Black. Good morning to you, Emma. Good morning, David. And you've had a, a rather significant life event since the last time we had you on the pod, I understand. Uh, yes, um, I had a little boy uh, nearly 10 weeks ago which is joyous um, and completely life-changing. And bless him, he's already been exposed to quite a lot of opera because I'm prepping for various things. Good. That's what we like. Well, I think it's it's proven, isn't it? You've got to get them early, you know, developmental. Get them very young. Yes, get it into the head. Um, Very good indeed. Let us start with the news that English National Opera with the big opera winners at this year's Sky Arts Awards, their production of Porgy and Bess uh, took the top gong. Uh, Emma, I know that you were a big fan of this production when it was on at the Coliseum last year. Yes, yeah, I feel very vindicated, actually, because the last time I was on the podcast, um, I lamented it hadn't been nominated for, I think it was the International Opera Awards. Yeah. Um, and then since then, it then went on to win Outstanding Achievement at the Olivier's. And it's also now won at the Sky Arts Awards. So I'm like, okay, good. I do have good taste. It's not just... Um, but yeah, no, it was, it's a fantastic, fantastic production. I think I said um, when we last spoke, Eric Green as Porgy was phenomenal. But the entire ensemble as well was stonkingly brilliant. So I'm really, really pleased for them. Yeah, so congratulations, uh, Ian O, as you say, a, a worthy winner. Um, and uh, as we mentioned a couple of months ago, a fascinating 1920 season coming up as well. Yes, so there may yes. be some more award-worthy fare coming up <laughs> over the next 12 months. Buxton have announced their 2020 season, and this is a fascinating compendium of pieces. Um, La Donna del Lago, Rossini, uh, Tribuletta by Reynaldo Hahn. Um, he was a, an early 20th century Venezuelan French composer. It's a very kind of typical uh, operetta story. It's, it's right out kind of the pages of Johann Strauss, this, <laughs> this, this, uh, this opera. But um, he's a really, really wonderful writer. Do, um, do go and have a listen on, on Spotify to, to some of his, it's his stuff. Quite, I, did have, I have to admit, I hadn't heard of it, but obviously this is one of Buxton's things. And I thought, wow, mm. straight away, it sounded so engaging. I thought, oh, yeah, that that's gonna be, sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I have a little bit of a hit and miss kind of love-hate relationship with Operetta. Um, some of it... Mainly hate. Um, mainly hate, yeah. <laughs> some of it really... And I'm, I must say that, you know, something like The Merry Widow, I, I really just cannot get on with. Um, I'm so sorry. I know you, that you like it very much, Emma. I'm so sorry well, to say I, that. I do. <laughs> I, I, well, I got to say, I don't dislike... I have actually um, conducted it, and it is, it is a lot of fun, but I just, yeah... It, there's some bits you think if I hear that line again, I'm gonna <laughs> hit yeah, the roof. Yeah, but that but is in a way, it's kind of that stylized fun. You know, talk about the melons. You know, I mean, you can, what, what, what can you not like about that? Um, 
so anyway, Chivalet by by Han. Um, that is one that I've already put a, uh, a ring around. I think we really need to see that. Uh, they've got a co-production with the early opera company of Asus and Galatea, The Handel. Uh, Music Theatre Wales uh, pay their annual uh, pilgrimage to, to Buxton uh, with a new opera, Violet, uh, composed by Tom Colt and written by Alice Birch. Uh, and then there's a new commission by Buxton um, of an oratorio um, around climate change, which is composed by Kate Whitley. Well, this, yeah, well, I, I was lucky enough, I was at Buxton last weekend and um, and what was interesting uh, before Eugene um, Michael Williams actually got onto the stage and basically did a huge um, in a lovely way actually we really want to continue this work and fund this new work and said they got the composer and I think again it's following on from the kind of success of the Kumbu and this, the chamber opera and the work they've mm. done so it's really interesting to see that that's like right at the heart and the fact that you know the biggest production well bearing in mind you've probably got the biggest audience for that um, he was kind of got, got up before he started and basically spoke to the audience but it was really great and it's really interesting to see that where he's going with with the festival obviously in the second year of it yeah and and i think you know the oratorio is such an interesting form and not one that i suppose people really kind of think about much anymore Mm. really it seems like quite a kind of historic form but for something like this about these kind of big weighty issues there's something really nice about uh, I suppose kind of a form which doesn't always embrace the theatricality of things but really kind of lets the, the, the music and the story kind of evolve and yeah. speak. Well I'm going to be really interested to see quite how that ends up being sort of what kind of space it becomes because it, like you say it's not the usual thing but then I'm kind of thinking is it going to kind of take on the fact that a lot of the oratories have been being performed that some of the bar masses have been being performed mm. so it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of turns out so I'm quite intrigued by that I think yeah. I definitely want to go and have a nosy yeah I mean I don't know what your experience is Emma I, I think again going back to operettas my kind of experience of staged oratorios is by the, by the way I can see David's face here <laughs> is, is, is again very hit and and miss some of them work well but some of them again there is something about the oratorio form particularly you know when we're looking at those kind of classics of handle oratorios mm. that there's a kind of a reason why they weren't written to be staged yeah, and sometimes it, it can be a little bit drawn out yeah it, it, it i mean it does you, you're completely right it depends what oratorio is being staged because uh, you're right some some of them there is dramatic potential there's huge dramatic potential there mm. and it's something really quite meaty for a director to get to get their hands on especially if it's never been done before mm. But there are others that are more akin to be performed in their original format, and it's just mm. finding finding which ones work best for which. Well, option. yeah. For example, I think Elijah would, is would be brilliant. I mean, I've just done that recently yeah. as a production, and actually, even though it's a choral society background, it's kind of this is so opera. And then you remember Mendelssohn never properly wrote. He did write one when he was sixteen or something, but he never wrote one. And then because he didn't write one, write one you kind of think, mm, well, maybe maybe can you give him a helping hand. <laughs> So anyway, <laughs> anyone out there willing to like be interested, my hat's out there. Yeah, we're always keen for people to pitch on our podcast, <laughs> yeah. so there we are. You want to stage an Elijah, give Helen a call. Um, but yeah, the, the scant on details at the, at the moment about um, mm. kind of the, the artistic teams and whatnot for these productions and quite how, you know, kind of they're going to do this particular oratorio. But Kate Whitley is a, is a fantastic composer and um, the co-founder of the multi-story orchestra um, and i've seen um, a couple of her pieces in performance she's a, a wonderful composer so I'm, I'm really excited to see that one as well um, and just a fascinating season all around at, at, at buxton um, mm. and i think it's fair to say as well you I mean you said you were at buxton the other yeah. the other week that their season seems to have gone down very well yeah there's a real buzz in the town i actually bumped into quite a few people it, it's this sounds terrible all the kind of things we don't want to talk about with opera but i bumped into a lot of people that i knew and everyone was really enjoying it um 
there was real buzz in the town. Everything was buzz. It was great atmosphere. Um, I saw um, Eugene, and you know, I really well. I love Tchaikovsky, so mm. it's just really enjoyed being for me actually on the other side and having a listen but also you know it was the thing that stood out for me is that there was such love and care of the music and you could really tell that all the performers from staged right into the pit that everyone was really looking after it in in a really careful way and it really came through it's a really nice feeling um and then i did see the kumbu which i really enjoyed that was conducted by tom newell um and again the commitment of the the principal singers, lots of young singers. I mean, and I think we've got uh, one of the singers joining you for one of your productions soon, Edward. Uh, yeah, Edward. Um, and they were fantastic. But but what was more impressive was the the young people on stage performing to a very very high level, totally committed. Um, what an experience for them. But also, what said it all for me is the the theatre was full of young people who who'd come in to watch the production, and. Um, Total rapt silence speaks for itself. And, you know, I just always have to do a slight sort of hobby horse here. You know, if you give great things to young people, they will love it. So let's keep giving them great things because they, they, there wasn't a peep out of them. And I know from from painful personal experience, if kids don't like what you're giving them, they will make their feelings known. <laughs> so there we are again. Another little pitch there from Helen to our, our new culture secretary, uh, Nikki Morgan. Just... <laughs> To, to stay on top of the political events. Um, yes, so uh, look forward to, to next season at Buxton. Uh, the Grange Festival also announced their 2020 season. Chenna Rentler, Midsummer Night's Dream, Man on Lesko and My Fair Lady. Um, now, I obviously love... I'm looking at David there. Just uh, Does he love music theatre? Oh, I absolutely love music theatre. Absolutely, do not get me wrong here. I absolutely love it. Um, I mean, Emma, I know you've kind of done a lot of work, obviously, um, all, all over... Um, the UK and, and into Europe, but also kind of a lot with, with Opera North, who've really kind of gone big yeah. on staging musicals recently. Yeah. What, what does an opera company bring to the staging of musicals, you know, rather than just sort of kind of leaving it to the commercial West End? What can an opera company bring? Well, I think it has to, um, it depends on the type of musical. And I must say, uh, My Fair Lady is a, is a prime example of this, that if you look at musicals from really kind of, from Rodgers and Hammerstein, to maybe the mid 60s um pretty much up until Sondheim I would say although Sondheim is also more operatic so I might just shot myself in the foot there um but definitely like the what you think was like the big Broadway musical was they did have massive orchestras and that is definitely something that an opera company can bring Mm. to a musical is you bring is you bring your quality um orchestra and therefore the size of the pit and there's just the sound is much bigger I know that um one of the reasons why, <clears throat> excuse me, people, myself included, um, really enjoy what John Wilson does um, at the proms and has been doing for the past decade, I think, at the proms, is that he brings, you know, he puts like an 80-piece orchestra on stage and they perform, you know, the MGM hits, which were originally performed and recorded with an 80-piece orchestra. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I, I was looking to see at Oklahoma at the proms a few years ago and I just thought, I saw it too. did you yeah I mean it was so I, I know I basically watched it live and I think it was on on live on um, BBC4 that night and I literally kind of watched it in the afternoon and then watched it again straight yeah. away but I, I'm totally with you I think the scoring of these shows you know right up to Kiss Me Kate and again I gotta say yeah. I'm a big fan of music theatre I just think when you've got a full orchestra, compare that to if you're in a, a pit. And as you know, a lot of music theatre bands, I, and I do music theatre, so totally love it as well. Um, 
it's just not the same when you've got the whole of the the strings reduced to a keyboard, you know, and it's a different sound world. And so, yeah, I'm with you. The orchestra thing is is brings it to another level, and you're just not going to get that in the West End now. I remember there was a a stage where you know, kind of for all my sins, it had been a long time since I actually been and seen a musical. I was you know I was seeing a lot of opera for obvious reasons and then the, the the next time i went to go and see a musical the first thing that struck me was oh my word this is such a small uh, sound uh, small yeah. sound but amplified a lot <laughs> yeah um yeah. and I, I completely agree for for me you know that there, there are sometimes things that opera companies don't get right with these staging stagings of, of musicals and there are some performers that go into those roles that of course can sing them but just don't have that kind of innate sense of style but if there is one thing that opera companies can bring it's the resource of the orchestra the skill of the orchestra and often as well the uh, slightly more of the opulence of the staging um, that's a good point actually yeah that the the opera north um kiss me kate which has done a a, a couple of rounds um here in leeds and on tour i just you could you know you could see the resource of a big opera company going into that i totally love that i mean i can you know when you remember certain things i just remember the end of Act One, where Kate was singing the top, it must be an it's probably higher. So some sopranos be saying, "How come she doesn't know that?" Anyway, and then she, I loved it. Act Two started with it turned around, and she came in and hit that note. I mean, yeah. wow! It, yeah. And I will it, say they they stunning. got the casting bang on in that Corinne Lang. Um, it was, was you know just absolutely fantastic as as, as Petruccio. Uh, so my fair lady rounds off uh, next year's Grange Festival 2020 season. Now, we've been talking about this quite a lot recently, so I'm not going to give over too much time for it today. Um, but Swapra have come out with the uh, statistics on the output of the major UK opera companies for the last season. Um, they found that 100% of the operas were written by men, 89% of them conducted by men, 71% directed by men, and 91% of the librettists were men as well. So, I mean, we had the uh, the fantastic um, Sophie Gilpin on recently to talk about the work with Swapper, and we've had, you know, Sean Edwards on and others yeah. talking about this. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we know there's an issue, but it's very handy to kind of have these facts and stats in, in, in hand to be able to kind of... Um, yeah, yeah, and put I think the waiting it, behind yeah, the, the narrative. Yeah, and it's the classical thing of, you know, very, very businessy and, and doesn't always lead to good good behaviours. But actually, if you're measuring something, it does begin, you've got a better chance of actually doing something about it once you can see what the stats actually look like. Yeah. Yeah. And if we, if we look at the stats, you know, um, Helen, you are quite clearly the more um, marginalised community of, of between you and Emma being a conductor and a director. Yeah. I mean, what, what is your kind of experience? I know you've done some work with, with Sean Edwards on some of these kind of um Yeah, I was really fortunate courses. last year that I was actually, you know, got to take part in the inaugural conducting proper women's course run by um, the Royal Philharmonic Society, which is led by Alice Farnham, the National Opera Studio and the Royal Opera House. And we had Jessica Cottis, Mark Shanahan. Uh, so, I mean, I can't... I'd be here all morning if I listed the people who came to it. It was, it was a fantastic <laughs> week um, and a great week. Um, what What's actually really nice about that is the ladies that we that were on the course together are still on, in touch in a WhatsApp group. If I need a few things, we, we all like help each other out. So it's really interesting because we've actually created a network for ourselves. But, you know, they were all so amazing. Um, it's, it's a really difficult thing. You know, you know what I'm going to say. I'll be so glad the day we're not talking about this. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, we are where we are. So I got to talk about it a little bit. Um, and I think... Um, there's a lot of work being done, which is which is good. I think Sean was so, you know, she's, I got to say, she's an amazing uh, teacher and facilitator. To to watch some of these people work 
and how they their their leadership was so inspiring and that was actually a really positive thing to see a woman in that space and how they how they work with other people and that in itself was an education because obviously as a conductor you're often your only role models are often being men for example in my life I've been conducted obviously I'm not quite 21 um by <laughs> and this is literally true on one I've been conducted by less than five women so that kind of gives you it's nice isn't it <laughs> so but but you know we've We've got to be good, but as I say, there's some rubbish men out there and there'll be some rubbish women, but we all just need a fair crack of the baton. Precisely. And as you say, when we have, you know, even numbers of, of female and male conductors, there'll be even numbers of rubbish conductors and there'll be even Absolutely. Even numbers and and of I, think, I think the other thing is, is going right to the grassroots, though, um, there's been some even more interesting stats coming through in terms of looking at um, participation of music undergraduates on electives in university courses and rather than say two people two women applying 10 men it's becoming more women applying so that is is really important however i still think we've got to do a lot at all the levels um right down down schools i recently conducted an opera and we had some school children in and they all wrote a little bit after i did meet them at the interval and it, it was a great experience um to meet them because they were around the corner from where i live in lancashire so dead ordinary taught like me and so it's really nice to meet them. And they wrote these little pieces after it. And one of them, though, said, so she's in year six. And one of the sentences was, oh, and it was very unusual, this opera, because there was a lady conducting. And I'm kind of out of the mouth of babes. <laughs> so in, in a way, that, you know, let's not, there's the next level. But also it does show, you know, we've, we've still got to keep being well, role That's models. very interesting because, you know, when we see all these kind of, picture books and, and things on television and you know the the doctor's always a man the pilot's or you know all those sorts of things but yeah i wouldn't have thought a 10 year old would go it was weird it wasn't a man conducting the orchestra well then, I mean, she's yeah. a very cultured 10 year old well well obviously this 10 year old was in my hometown of blackburn so you've got to be cultured oh, if you come course. from blackburn obviously you know um so it's an interesting thing but i i think you know as I see it, the more of us are out there doing it, you know, it's important for, you know, I'm a conductor of the youth orchestra. It's very important, I think, that I'm actually just up there. Actually, in my yeah. county, five of the six county ensembles are led by women. Oh, that's brilliant. So that, that's a great thing. Um, but almost just while I'm here, every year we kind of, I run a conducting day with the youth orchestra where we have some members step up from the youth orchestra and we have like a that kind of invited guest school. And I have to be honest, to get the, the ladies to conduct, it's more I kind of, in a nice way, don't give them a choice. If I ask for mm -hmm. hands up, I know that the blokes will all put their hands up and be gung-ho about it. So, you know, I've learned in my own way how to kind of make sure that people, young women, are getting opportunities to, and, you know, willing to give it a go. So, yeah, I think I think you're quite right. Hopefully, when we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of OperaCast, we won't be talking about this anymore. <laughs> but whilst but whilst it's, you know, still something that we can see hard facts are there, we will keep reporting Appreciate on it. Appreciate that. Thank you. Um, like the good opera journalists we <laughs> pretend to be. <laughs> Before we move on, a reminder that on Monday the 26th of August at 2 o'clock here at our home at Chapel FM, we've got a live opera cast recording. It's free to attend. It'll be a special festivals-themed edition with a panellist of people um, who represent some of the top opera festivals in the UK. Uh, we'll also have a little bit of an opera quiz with some prizes and your chance to ask questions to the panel. So do join us Monday the 26th 
of August here at Chapel FM is free to attend. The recording is part of this year's Leeds Opera Festival, which is celebrating Shakespeare and opera. Uh, headline performance of Stanford's fantastic comic opera, Much Ado About Nothing. Um, a number of events over five days, including uh, a new project at Leeds Town Hall called Musical Confusion. Now, Helen, I do believe you're conducting Musical Confusion. Would you like to I tell do. us a little bit about what people can expect? Right. So it's it's a really interesting project. So the idea is that we're going to combine Shakespeare text with some of the music from Shakespeare's operas, um, or, or operas inspired by Shakespeare, obviously. Um, so it's quite a challenge because, as you can imagine, I think David will probably know how many shapes of operas are there. Something like three hundred. Over three hundred. Over three hundred, and obviously, there's quite a few plays. Um, so, to be honest, the big worry uh, was how on earth are we going to distill this into something in that lasts about fifty minutes to an hour, but is also an engaging emotional experience for our audience rather than a kind of let's show how clever we are about opera thing. Uh, but I'm very pleased um, we had our first kind of research meeting uh, this week with the director, Elizabeth Freestone, who I met for the first time. And um, the, the relief was that we managed to actually get some sort of structure working and some um, some scope to it. And um, it was really exciting. So we, we've actually got kind of a skeleton and we kind of know what we're working to now. But what's really exciting, I think, musically, is rather than me having to get a score and kind of totally you know, be faithful to the score, apart from, you know, making sacrifices, well, not sacrifices, but making sure, it, you know, the drama and the staging and the show is good. We can kind of do what we like. We've got the option to text, speak, text, or on sing. So the, so um, it's actually really um, freeing to do that. So I'm really enjoying it. It's complete. And also it's very nice to work in a, with a director in a different capacity. I mean, Emma, you can probably talk to this, but often, obviously, you know, there's an interesting relationship when you're working with a director um, as a conductor, you know, in, in an orchestral world, I'm totally in charge of that room. Whereas on, mm. in opera, there's a different dynamic. Um, so it's kind of nice that we're kind of creating the thing totally together rather than me kind of um, almost sometimes being the, the scorekeeper, quite literally, <laughs> as it were, <laughs> and someone kind yeah, of I'm, moving people about. So I'd be interested to... Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I must say, actually, one of the... Um, one of the happiest relationships I've seen between a director and a conductor was a production that I was an assistant on a couple of years ago. It was, um, they had actually, we were doing uh, the coronation of Capea at Opera North um, and the director and the conductor had decided years prior that they were going to do it in English and had then spent two years working together wow. writing a new translation. So when we all turned up on day one of the rehearsal process um tim Aubrey and lawrence cummings who were the director and conductor respectively were already this like established working team um and basically presented their translation and it's one of the happiest rooms i've ever worked mm. in msa because these two a clearly got on like, a house on fire yeah. which is not always necessary but you need to have that um professional respect for your colleague yeah um and they spent two years already working together on basically their baby and then delivered it to us and then it was then on stage Absolutely, yeah. Well, we, it's interesting because on a smaller scale, we were obviously there's some music that will need to be learned, and obviously often the music rehearsals start before or whatever. And we thought, mm. thought actually with this project, it's really important that we actually work with. We're actually going to have two singers and two actors who can sing. If you see what I mean, 
Um, yeah. And we've, we we talk about how we're going to structure the rehearsals and that's, and one of the things we said it's really important that we actually meet with them because otherwise, to be honest, we're going to have no idea what the project's about and it'll look totally crazy. And and actually what you said is a really good point about being able to see that the moment you come in, you've actually got a team yeah. Um, at the top, who who are who've got a vision together and know one another, and, you know, have a, a a very good working relationship, yeah. rather than oh, you know, having They've to work together. Yeah, on the working it on the fly. Yeah, yeah but I often say it's a bit like a kind of blind date, you know, <laughs> when you're working with someone for the first time because you really don't know what's going to happen. You just pray and the chemistry's all right and. Uh, yeah, we, I think it all went pretty well. David, David didn't have to separate any fights or anything. It was all very... <laughs> it was all very amicable and constructive. <laughs> um, visit northernoperagroup.co.uk to find out full details of the Leeds Opera Festival, uh, including our Operacast recording on Monday the 26th of August. Glyndebourne have announced the return of the Glyndebourne Cup. What a wonderful name, first of all. Um, I, I love that. Uh, it sounds like, um, you know, the rowing, not the rowing one, sorry, the sailing one. What's oh, the like same the, the one? Calcutta... Oh, the Amer- yeah. America's Cup. America's that's Cup, right. That's yeah, it, yeah, it kind of sounds like that, but I probably shouldn't say that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's, it sounds kind of nice. It sounds a sort of old school, kind of calling it the cup, but uh, yeah, a bit sort of jolly hockey sticks about it. I don't know. It's very glimeable. <laughs> yeah, it, you know? yeah. Um, but that will return next year, two years um, after the inaugural edition. There's a top prize of fifteen thousand pounds for the winning singer, uh, which comes with a role at a top opera house as well. And the whole competition will again be broadcast on Sky Arts. Uh, the main difference with this year's competition from the 2018 edition uh, is that they're hoping to broaden the diversity of talent attracted. Uh, by doing three things. They're going to be visiting twice as many cities for the preliminary rounds as last time. They're going to remove some of the economic barriers to entry with the offer of Sky Arts bursaries to cover the costs of travel and accommodation. And they're going to be launching a major social media campaign uh, with the help of ambassadors from across the classical music world. Uh, Any of you singers listening and are interested, applications open on the 1st of September. uh, And the repertoire that you'll need to perform as part of the competition are arias by Mozart, Rossini and an unnamed selection of French 19th century composers. Uh, We've also chatted about competitions before. We had a whole week of Cardiff Singapods just last (laughs) month. Um, Emma, does this competition offer something new? It seemed to generate a lot of interest last time around, but, you know, especially, you know, it's only broadcast on Sky Arts. You're not kind of getting the big reach if you're a a singer. Um, Is this offering us anything different? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, As I'm not a singer myself, I kind of tend to... I get to watch these things more as a, as a punter more than more than anything. Um, I think anything that um, I must say, when, what you said about how they're um, getting rid of any economic economic barrier to applying—that's always a fantastic thing because you do, you do not know what pool of talent is out there um, until you c- completely widen the field. Um, and unfortunately, in this industry, um, money can be a, is a barrier to quite a lot of people. Um, and I think anything. I think it's great for Glyndebourne. Any, I mean, any any exposure for um, for that company is always is always a good thing. Um, I must say, I didn't follow it in twenty eighteen. I was mainly out of the country in twenty eighteen. <laughs> that's my excuse. Um, but I'm, I will be I will be watching it next year with with interest and seeing seeing who's who's applied. Um, I had the the joy this year with Cardiff Singer that actually a couple of people that I knew were competing, and that made it all the more interesting for me. Mm. Yeah, I, I think you're quite right. You know, we've we've already spoken today about about women in opera, and we talk, um, you know, kind of about um, ethnicity as well. But one of the big things that we don't talk about, and I don't think we've got time today, but are those kind of another problem. Well, yeah. there are those economic <laughs> barriers to to entry is that there are so many, you know, uh, on the administrative as well as the performing side, so many things where there are lots of internships or, you know, 
work placements know, about, but they're, unpaid. but they're not paid. I know. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I think I you make a really good point, and I think um, there's a again through some of my work with with young people, you know, the barriers to children learning to play an instrument are becoming ever more um, stark. Um, you can hear, I'm from Lancashire, a normal town. I went to Comprehensive. I learned with the music service at that point that was fully funded. And I know things change, but the reality is I, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't had those opportunities. But I'm just an ordinary kind of person. Yes, I know all this opera musical stuff, but it's because I went on and studied that and I loved it and had that opportunity. Yeah. And, it, and it does really concern me that that opera will become a music more and more, you know, the preserve of those who can afford it. And again, when we're talking about diversity, you're exactly right. It's not just about, you know, ethnicity, sexuality, anything of those. It is also about, you know, basic barriers of economics. Yeah. And it's a huge issue. And obviously no no easy answers. And I grapple with this sometimes on a daily basis with some of of the students I have in the youth orchestra. I think you were absolutely right, Emma. The the offering of um, sort of bursaries is a great thing because if you look at any routes now into classical music, it's now more and more you need you'll have done your undergrad, you'll have done, especially for the singers. And I know there's the NL element as well with the voices do mature, but if you think you spent the best part of a decade in study, then you yeah. may become a young artist where probably depending on how you do, and then you still got to apply for auditions and all the rest of it. As you were saying, Helen, there's a real problem throughout the range. There's people mm-hmm. who can't don't pick up an instrument because they can't afford it. There's then the issue mm-hmm. of, you know, when you get into the profession, you're either having to spend lots of money going to auditions and yeah. or you're doing things for free. Or there are a lot of, you know, we won't we won't name them, but there are lots of companies doing, you know, really good work, really well known companies that pay yeah. pittance. I, I know. Um and that means that a lot of the singers that you meet and are coming through lovely people as they are tend to be of a, of a certain demographic because they can afford to take all of these things for and free. And then, then the thing is you do perpetuate you it just because, because the these yeah. people are able to take up these opportunities which they get the experience. But, you know, for a normal person, there's, there's just the reality of paying the rent. They've had to get a, a you know, a salaried job. Um I just think while we're in Leeds, one of the interesting developments, I think Leeds College of Music abolished audition fees yeah. recently. Yes, they did, which and I think is such a, such a good move. Well, I think, also, I'm just yeah. appalled that it was still happening, to be honest. Well, yeah. I, I just they think it's a, a really strong statement because if you think of anybody going to say four or five, auditioning four or five times, you know, from an ordinary background, as it were, that's a huge cost, and straight away, if you were just applying to university to read history, well, that cost doesn't exist. Can you imagine if you were to every university you apply to, you know, you had to, you had to uh, pay money yeah. just to even kind of do it? You know, it's it's, it's it terrible. Do, it does need looking at. And, and the thing is, we can all talk about these really nice things, um, but actually sometimes we really do need to look at those really basic economic realities. And I, I know they're hard, and you can people say, well, there's obviously always pressures of... of um, I guess public money and I totally understand that as we know there's a lot of pressing issues socially and we know that however what one phrase always sticks in my mind um, Winston Churchill and the Second World War just to just go totally off piece so <laughs> really the, the what, uh, what, brevity of I know um, he was talking about why are we going to war you know and one of his statements was we are going to war so that so that our children can have culture so that we can be part of a society that has things that we enjoy doing and that is 
towards having a, a positive, pleasurable life. And I think so often, just think about how much music is embedded in our lives, from mm. from the way we wake up, even you know the Intel little you know annoying icon or a icon each time you have to get an Intel Pentium processor or whatever. If we have no music, the world would be terrible. But the reality is, to ha- have that happen, people actually need to be able to be able to play it and sing it, and um, it does it does worry me. Um, and it does actually sometimes keep me awake, which is a bit sad, but it's true. Yeah, and as you say, if we didn't train any composers, who would compose the little jingles for Intel <laughs> printing processors? Da dee da da. Yeah, you know, there you go. there's someone with ten years study there who's come up with that. Um, but yes, uh, the Glymon Cup returns <laughs> next <laughs> year, so we look forward to, to to seeing that. If you've got Sky Arts, um, we will cover it, I'm sure, uh, here on Operacast. If you do, or if you do not. To end the uh, news roundup, um, the rather sad news that um, Dame Sarah Conley has announced that she's been diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, she's had to withdraw from the proms and ENO's new season to undertake immediate treatment. Um, she has been fulfilling some other engagements, um, and I think it, it looks as though it kind of has been caught at least at kind of a, a good stage where she can kind of start taking um, treatment right away. Um, so obviously, we all wish um, mm, Dame Sarah absolutely. the very best. Not only a fantastic performer a fantastic advocate for opera um but i think a great kind of personality as well absolutely um yeah so all the best to dave sarah over the next few months now early this month i had the great pleasure of sitting down with the conductor john andrews to talk about the forthcoming season at english touring opera the joys and tribulations of touring and his passion for exploring the dusty realms of english opera so I'm joined this afternoon in the rather sweltering English touring opera uh, offices by the conductor John Andrews. Hello, John. Hi, David. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, we've got a few things we're going to chat about um, this afternoon. Let's start off. Uh, you're here because you're uh, just about to start rehearsals for English touring opera's new season, um, a, a double bill of the Silver Lake and the Seraglio, a production from the Seraglio by Mozart. Um, tell us a little bit about what audiences can expect from this new season. Well, we've got two works here that have lots of interesting things in common, but obviously come from two very, very different eras. They're both singspiels, so they're both a curious mixture of theatre and opera. Seraglio in particular is a really interesting mixture of three different types of theatre, and it was what attracted Mozart to it. You've got a traditional opera seria with Belmonte and Constanza, You've got a German comic opera with Blonde and Osmin. And then you've also got straight spoken theatre and the relationship between Constanza and the Pasha is played out through that. So in a way, you're blending three different kinds of theatre together and trying to make sure, as Mozart certainly did, that it's more effective than the sum of its parts. And so... You're always balancing these very, very different energies, and he does it very, very cleverly, and that's what we're trying to make come alive. The Silver Lake obviously comes from that same tradition, and Weil was consciously looking to Mozart as an influence in precisely the same way, blending theatre with music to try to create something that has the best of both. And for Weil, of course, a very obvious clear political message but even that goes back to Mozart who has a very serious enlightenment story to tell behind the knockabout comedy. What is it particularly about the Seraglio for you that is exciting you know why is it something that you wanted to to take on? 
Well, it's a piece I've loved for a very, very long time and I've done many times. And it's that journey that the characters make because you start in a very, very, very traditional place and you think you're in a drama that is playing West and Europe against an, a fictitious Oriental East. But the further you get into it, the more you realise that Mozart is enjoying turning the tables and you find that the Pasha is the most enlightened of the characters and that Belmonte in particular has an awful lot to learn and in the final scene realises that what has sparked the whole chain of events is his father's misbehaviour towards someone. So you have all the elements of a very, very traditional fable that Mozart is constantly playing with and playing with your expectations. He's also finding his way into a folk style of opera or a vernacular style of opera. This was famously his attempt to persuade the German people that opera was possible in German. And so he's giving the best of serious opera in German and also comic opera that would have been very recognisable to audiences and wrapping the two together and showing that it didn't need to be an either-or situation, that uh, sophisticated Italianate opera could be performed in German and could be part of an integrated type of performance that blended the best of the more sophisticated opera tradition with the comic vernacular style. Yeah, I mean, with so many operas of not just this period, but but kind of throughout opera's history, there were um, kind of testing kind of uh, cultural questions in terms of the depiction of people from from other lands. This kind of um, mysticism, you know, uh, Middle Easternism or Orientalism. I mean, kind of how have you and kind of the director kind of come about it from this production in terms of how to try and approach those sorts of themes in the opera? It's a it's a really good question, and of course the themes are very, very sensitive in the moment, and we have to approach them with respect for modern sensibilities and the modern cultural situation that we find ourselves in, and also try to make space for understanding what these really meant to Mozart and Bretzner and Stephanie in the 18th century. In a way, the Turkey that we find ourselves in is not a real place it's a place of the imagination and like many satires by taking the action there you're taking it to a fictional place which allows you to reflect on western values yeah so it's less about it necessarily sort of being turkey than it just being a place that's different almost kind of it, it, it's a place that's away it's a place where people are forced to question their own values and they find themselves in a realm where all of their assumptions have suddenly been pulled out from under them their assumptions about class status their assumptions about who is enlightened who is savage everything is just ripped from underneath them and therefore they have to build up their understanding of those questions from scratch um it's i think very very important that for Mozart, Turkey had stopped being a place of threat. A century earlier than this, the Turks had come all the way to the gates of Vienna. There had been a siege that was relieved only after a very fierce 
battle. So by the time Mozart is writing, Turkey is no longer a genuine threat to the empire. It's become a place that's more distant and he's fictionalizing it here as a way of exploring these questions about enlightenment, about what love means, what enlightenment means, and what are the qualities of an enlightened ruler. Yeah, so we've got the the viol and the Mozart in this season, which don't seem like kind of natural bedfellows. Is there, are the kind of things that kind of bring them together for this, or is this about bringing two different things to to audiences across the country? There are certainly things that bring them together. The first is that experimental approach for both composers about how much you could bring theatre and music together without compromising either part. Both of them tell their stories fully, both in text and in music. I think for ETO as well, it's important that they are both not at the centre of either composer's Mm. core repertoire. The company has always been courageous about programming and to have these works that are not the best known of either composer also links them. The need to address matters of politics and morality is also central to both pieces. Um, in the vial, of, it was written in the early years of the Nazi regime. It was banned. It was the last thing that Weil wrote in Germany. So there's obviously a very direct and clear political message. Mozart's is more gentle. His thoughts about enlightenment and about education are important, but they are certainly more gently touched on in the way he treats the drama. Mm. Um, Now, obviously, English touring opera plays a really important role in the UK's opera scene, taking opera to towns and cities that don't get any other sort of provision and I think it's absolutely to be commended as you say that they often go for works okay not completely out of the ordinary but something something a little bit different it'd be very easy just kind of rock up with a figure over a year to to, to wherever they're, they're, they happen to be going um when you've kind of been involved with tours before do you find that audiences react very differently in kind of different venues and towns do you often are you often kind of quite surprised by how things change across a tour It can be very surprising how things change across the tour. And of course, that's often linked to size of theatre, the way you have to adapt the performance, sometimes to a 500-seat theatre, sometimes to an 1,800-seat theatre. It's vital for us to be able to adapt the scale of performance to suit the space. And absolutely, we're always finding that things resonate. If it's a comedy, that laughs come in entirely different places. The rhythm of the show naturally evolves over the course of a tour particularly the spring tours which are longer but audiences are incredibly alive and responsive to everything we do i think it's really important that we do less popular works because particularly now in an age of live broadcasts there's no shortage of bohems and figaros and toscas that people can see people's access to music is on a scale that we've never known before. So we offer not only something slightly off-centre, as we've just done with the Rossini Elisabetta, but also that really direct live performance experience. And it's really important for us to be able to communicate the drama. One of the reasons, of course, for doing these in English. 
I mean, thinking about kind of the the practicalities of kind of being a, a touring conductor. I mean, what what are the particular challenges for you on a tour? I'm thinking about you know adjusting to different pit sizes, different acoustics. I mean, what when you enter a venue, what are you going right? Okay, my ABC of acclimatizing myself you know kind of what are those challenges well i'm fortunate now that i've done enough of these tours that i know most of the venues before i get there but it's absolutely as you say it's pit size some of these theaters have gloriously spacious pits where we're very very comfortable and we can hear each other some of the venues and i will not name any names have pits where we have to put brass and percussion either in the trap room or in the wings uh, are they generally quite understanding or is that they do, do they quite enjoy having the room to themselves and they you know uh... <laughs> they've got used to it they deal with they deal with it with a stoicism and resignation they've got very used to anticipating the beat and playing off a monitor and making adjustments to balance and similarly the percussion are often put somewhere horrible and uncomfortable but then that also goes to the acoustic there are some theatres where we can hear the stage very very easily we can hear each other very very easily there are some venues where the orchestra can't hear the stage terribly well and of course every venue the balance between pit and stage changes fundamentally so the first thing i do when i get to a venue is see the pit layout get some sense of the space and the size of the auditorium. And then we always have a half hour seating call before the show where we can get some sense of what the overall acoustics going to be like. Of course, that's not perfect because there's no audience in. So it changes again. And then we're just reliant on a little bit of experience to make the necessary adjustments come the show to try to put things across as best we can. Yeah, that must be so difficult because I know you're at Holland Park at, at, at the moment and you're going to have... I suppose, quite a lot of time in the theatre to really get every kind of nuance of kind of how it works in the space. But for this, you've got, what, you say half an hour kind of in each venue to try, to try and work it out? Yeah, absolutely. And and we really are then relying on past experience. I mean, don't let Holland Park off too lightly. Any outdoor theatre means that your acoustic experience is then totally weather dependent and you have to be ready for um, either pouring rain or you know in an english summer even hail sometimes and peacocks and aeroplanes yeah so there's all storms of, and, and police sirens absolutely but yeah we have very 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 little time and i think for certainly for singers who are new to the experience that it can be a big shock because they will get a totally different sound back the way they hear themselves how far the audience are away and that then contributes to how immediate you feel the reaction from the audience that counts more in comedy perhaps than than in the tragedies and serious works but it does take a lot of adjusting and it does mean that the the natural rhythm of the piece then often finds itself evolving to each of those venues so is there anything that you might kind of do differently in rehearsal or approach it differently in rehearsal knowing that every tour location is going to be a little bit different or do you just in that rehearsal try and create the absolute product that you want to create and and deal with um anomalies as you <laughs> as you go along well i'm i'm fond of a little bit of spontaneity anyway so i do try to factor into rehearsals the fact that i may just decide in a performance to take something in a slightly different direction and, and i and like everyone everyone loves that do they, they? most people love it <laughs> not everybody loves it and i try to be sensitive to which singers yes, yeah. are going to be open for a little bit of freedom on the night and who's going to prefer 
to stick to precisely what we've agreed on. And that, of course, has to be sensitive to the production and all of that has to be sensitive to what the director is asking for. And I certainly wouldn't do anything spontaneously in a performance that that drifted away from the tone that we were after and the, the dramatic timing that we were looking for. But I do, I think, try to make sure that everybody is used to a range of speeds not not a not a vast range of speeds but just knowing that in some places that are very very dry we're going to want to keep things moving that mm. there isn't going to be an acoustic to luxuriate in and at the same time they will not be thrown when we get into some of the venues which are incredibly resonant and some of the places we go are double as concert halls they can have very very warm very very spacious acoustics mm. that require us to just take a little bit off the speed to let the dialogue speak to let the drama speak and to let the sound clear enough to let the detail come through that's really interesting um whether it be on tour or when you're just in kind of one theater that element of having spontaneity how much of that is kind of the kind of the, the mood for the audience or your kind of artistic mood that evening and how much is that actually just trying to keep things interesting for yourselves because I, I, I can imagine you know we're, we're not talking about sort of eight shows a week you know 20 years in in um in the lion king sort of thing but even on kind of a tour there must be stages where you go wouldn't it be nice if we just <laughs> we just gonna hit something different you know? uh, absolutely i think for for a tour like this we're talking about nine performances so we're not in that territory for this but some of the spring tours might be 25 mm. 28 shows and certainly you do need to inject some spontaneity and I try to take that from the singers. I can see them developing ideas. You can see um, musical thoughts germinating, and I like to be able to experiment with those and to to take any uh, invitation that I'm given to try and find interesting new developments. It, and that's the word, that's the important word, development. We're not talking about suddenly going off the rails going yeah. off the rails we're not talking <laughs> yeah. about a different suddenly making a different show um of course on tour we often then have cast changes so that introduces enough uh, uh, it, enough, it, perfectly enough, enough difference for everyone enough difference for everyone and at that point of course what you need to do is keep it as close to the rehearsed as yeah. possible and to keep to keep that all under control and some of the long tours, you know, if there, there may be different singers coming in in different roles. So that that keeps it all very much alive. And on this, we're we're only talking about six weeks and nine shows. So it's just whether someone's allowed a moment for a twinkle in the eye. <laughs> um, as a conductor, what makes a great venue for you? When do you arrive in a theatre and go, oh, this is, you know, this is going to be a good evening. You know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling happy. Here. Well, particularly for Mozart and I've done also a lot Rossini and, and Donizetti that bel canto what I want from a venue is to know that every word is going to land with the mm. audience and these p pieces really love the venues that we go to on tour um the medium sized particularly the late 19th century theaters where none of the audience are too far away where I know that we can communicate every last nuance of emotion to everyone, that nobody's straining to see, nobody's straining to hear, that I can balance the orchestra so that every line of dialogue, every line of sung aria is going to land with maximum impact. And those are the ones I like where detail isn't swallowed up. I 
hope to be able to present the music so that the audience can hear all the detail that I can hear. And that's what I'm aiming for. And we have some really lovely spaces to perform in mm. where that's a joy. Yeah, so it's interesting. It's kind of knowing that everyone that's kind of behind your back is kind of feeling comfortable and enjoying it and being able to kind of take it all in. That's kind of Absolutely. how you feel comfortable, that, isn't that it? Absolutely, they can, that they can have as as complete and as um, as detailed an oral experience and obviously uh, I want them to be able to see it as well that's not my job but I, mm. I want to make sure that um, the music and the drama are perfectly knitted together I think that's the thing that's most important for me as an opera conductor is never letting the drama and the music ever separate for one single second mm. every every line has to be rooted in the drama how everything is sung has to be rooted in the storytelling it's storytelling or it's nothing uh, there are um, cases of of conductors and directors you know effectively producing two separate performances where the music and the stage don't speak to each other and I can't imagine anything more dispiriting than that and that's what's so joyful about the rehearsal process is that I obviously have a very strong view about how this music should be performed but that doesn't stop the five weeks in the studio being a constant exploration of how I can help the director tell their story and how I can absorb their ideas about who these people are, what these characters feel for the way I mould the arias and the ensembles. Mm. That's really interesting. I think as someone, and I know certainly this is my case, coming into opera for the first time, you sort of start off by thinking that the conductor's there to kind of keep the tempo, basically. But the, the, well, it, <laughs> maybe in, sometimes, in, sometimes it is, you know, yeah. And that's part of the job. But I suppose kind of the more you get, kind of get to, to know opera, the more you realise that the conductor, you know, without kind of bigging up your ego, really is the kind of the most important person there. As the, as the performance goes on, you're in a way kind of directing as it goes along. Every kind of little nuance that you put in, every little tempo change that you put in is is really guiding us all kind of through the the piece it is and and you stay there as a conductor you're there when the director's gone when Mm. the director's by force of the nature of the beast has had to relinquish their their control and so it's vital therefore that what you carry in you as a conductor is a sense of the director's view Mm. sense of the whole thing of of the whole thing and that you don't send uh, an aria off in a direction where it no longer has the right emotional colour, quite aside from the practicalities of, of staying within a, a tempo that allows the singer to deliver it to their best ability. Mm. So what is it that makes kind of a successful tour, or I suppose touring enjoyable for you? If I'm, you know, organising a tour and I want to keep all of my artists happy and on top form you know what kind of the the kind of the key things i should be looking out for is it you know the 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 hotel rooms the coach you know what what is it that kind of uh you know makes it uh, enjoyable and comfortable for for you as a as a touring artist touring is really lovely when there's not too long between each performance long enough to rest long enough that you don't get utterly exhausted but also not so long that stuff starts to get um dusty and rusty we go to lovely places. I think it's nice to be in the parts of the country where you can enjoy the scenery and mm. the environment. It's nice to have long enough to do that. It's nice to be in lovely theatres. It's nice to be able to be in one theatre more than once, and that's 
I think something that gets ever harder as theatres struggle to find audiences for opera or are wary of finding audiences. And so we now find ourselves, to our regret, playing not necessarily so many shows in any one place. It would be nicer for us, certainly, if we were able to spend a week in each venue, get to know the space, get to know the audiences, and be a little bit more settled that way. It's wonderful that everywhere we go is a great theatre. That's a huge benefit. We're not playing anywhere where we're in discomfort. Yeah, sometimes the pits are are small and sometimes backstages haven't been renovated as recently as the front of house. But we're really, really lucky in the places we play. So that really helps keep a tour happy, lively. Yeah, because I suppose it's a bit of a home away from home, is it? especially when you're there for a couple of days, you're kind of getting into the theatre and, and whatnot. You know, you end up spending quite a lot of time in that in that space, I suppose. You, you certainly can. And so you want to be able to create some kind of homeliness as quickly as you can by whatever means you have at your disposal. I mean, I do, I, I do understand now. I never did um, why big stars have these uh, long detailed riders in their contracts about what kind of tea and coffee and wine and cushions and what have you. I think I do understand now if you really are away from home that much Mm. that you you want to be able to simulate a home in the way that most of us take for granted. Um, I'm uh, fortunately or unfortunately not in that position that I'm away from home for years on end but you still need to be able to take some kind of comforts with you to stay sane in your career to date you've done an awful lot of kind of different stuff from the the recording with the thomas arn Mm. the mozart the rossini a lot of gns um has that been a happy coincidence or is that something that you've kind of very definitely wanted to do to not kind of get pigeonholed into kind of doing one sort of thing well i love doing things that are not entirely on the beaten track and that's mm. certainly been if not a conscious plan on my part certainly I've always taken delight in finding the different and the surprising lots of happy accidents have led to me being where I am now I'm mean, Thomas Arn was a discovery I made my doctorate was on Handel and his English oratorios and as a consequence of that I did a lot of work studying his English contemporaries and of course there's a wealth of glorious 18th century English music that was effectively um, suppressed by, not by any great deliberate conspiracy, but simply by Handel's success, and then by later snobbery towards what had been grown here in the 18th century. Through that, I became involved with the English Music Festival, and that brought me into contact with Sullivan and not just the Gilbert operas, but his serious works. So I've now recorded his incidental music to Macbeth and the Tempest and his sublime oratorio, The Light of the World. These are really, really important works and truly beautiful contributions to the repertoire. And I think it's fairly scandalous that I'm making the first recordings of these 100, 150 years after the fact. The bel canto has also been just one long 
voyage of very happy discoveries, both Donizetti and Rossini, and to try to present the works that these composers found important. Rossini suffers from having become known after his death primarily for his comedies when his own identity himself was as a composer of serious works and his influence on other people at the time was very much through his serious operas. It was Rossini, the writer of tragedies and, and semiserias that had the profound influence on Donizetti and through that to Verdi. So it's been lovely to have a chance to bring those works out as well. So I've been very, very happy to take these opportunities when they've come my way. Similarly, Susanna's Secret, which I'm rehearsing at Holland Park at the moment. It's a work I've known about for years, but coming now to get to grips with it, this is an absolutely astonishing work, an entire drama compressed into 45 minutes with only two singers that spans an incredible stylistic gamut from Puccini through Debussy through... Uh, references back to 18th century intermezzi, so he's constantly winking back towards the 18th century. It's an astonishing drama, so I've been very, very happy to immerse myself in all of this. I have to say, though, after three years of that, I am quite looking forward to getting back to Mozart and a piece I already know. <laughs> um, it's interesting you say there about the kind of the Arne and the Sullivan a bit off the beaten track. I mean, we are famously the land kind of without music. And actually, if you ask most people to kind of name, a, I suppose, an English uh, opera composer, you know, we'll get Purcell and then we'll go to Britain. It's like 300 years sort of never happened. Absolutely. Is this music neglected because it doesn't quite reach the heights of kind of the European contemporaries? Or is there just, are there kind of other reasons, do you think, why we've neglected so many of these composers? Oh, I think it's a very, very complex set of reasons. I don't think it would be fair to dismiss, I mean, Arne in the 18th century or Sullivan as lesser than many of their European contemporaries. But they lived in worlds in which there was phenomenal cross-fertilisation from the continent. So Arne is suffering from the huge fashion for Italian opera that mm. Handel brought over. Sullivan's choral works were immensely popular in his own day and he enjoyed huge success but he was in direct competition if you think about the Birmingham Festival and, and Leeds you know um, he was only a generation after Mendelssohn he'd been a Mendelssohn scholar in Leipzig and Vorjak was coming over shortly after Sullivan's successes we get another generation with Elgar going on to Vaughan Williams and I think he suffered, as many of those late 19th century English composers did, with the changes of fashion in the early 20th century. Elgar's really high, rich romanticism made Sullivan's generation look incredibly old-fashioned very quickly come the early years of the 20th century. And then, of course, the First World War brought that shattering of assumptions about the 19th century as a whole and you suddenly get the conflicting pressures of modernism of nationalism of a whole set of composers who thoroughly rejected the 19th century so I, i've also re recorded cowan's fifth symphony cowan was a 
incredibly successful composer and he disappears almost overnight with the beginning of the First World War. The same is really true of people like Stamford and Parry mm. who were incredibly successful and they disappear almost overnight. But you have to combine that with the fact that for lots of these people, they didn't necessarily expect their music to survive. There was a fundamental change in audiences' attitudes towards music of the past. And if you consider that in 1800, 1820, every single piece that audiences saw in the theatre or the opera house would have been new. You simply didn't perform old music. You knew it was there, you might respect it deeply, but you went to the opera house to see this year's new show. Between the early years of the 19th century and the end of the 19th century, early years of the 20th century, we run almost full circle. And by the 20th century, concert programmes are dominated by older works. And as we go through the 20th century, they become dominated by works that are not only older, but by dead composers. And our ability then to explore through publication and whatever the far reaches of the repertoire means that we are increasingly dependent on old works in a way that people in the early and middle of the 19th century never were. So what you're looking for then as a, a composer who's disappeared from fashion is someone to bring you back. And I think Sullivan then suffered from the fact that he was known so well for the Gilbert collaborations. Mm. So it was a cruel trick that history played that one part of his repertoire should be so successful in a way that meant that people didn't see any reason to revive the serious works. But you see, the same, if we were having this conversation 100 years ago, we'd be saying much the same about Mozart. He was known for a very small number of operas. 100 years ago, we were still waiting pretty much for the, a British performance of Così fan tutte, that um, his restoration to the the regard that he's held in now was yet to come. So there was always that need for somebody to champion composers a generation or so after they died. And so we we have to be, I think, a little bit indulgent and just accept that some music disappeared because it did. And as I always say, there's loads of great stuff um, that needs to be kind of got out of drawers and performed, but sometimes things are put in drawers for a reason. Absolutely. <laughs> well, things are put in drawers for a reason. And and uh, as I was saying before, lots of composers never imagine that their works will be performed any more than a handful of times. Music for many hundreds of years was regarded as disposable. Mm. It, it was written for its occasion. If it was incredibly successful, you might do it a couple more times. If it was really really successful particularly if you're a baroque composer or an italian bel canto composer you'd nick the best bits you'd recycle them into another work if something's enjoyed a particular success or you're now writing for a different audience but the idea that a work had to have an eternal life is a comparatively recent one so lots of music was never intended to have a long life and i think that's uh, something that we have lost to our cost the idea that it's okay for music to have only a brief life it's a, and it's okay for it to fail sometimes. I feel very, very, very sorry for 
composers in the modern world and the pressure that is brought to bear on them to have immense successes and to create works that will endure. I think that's a pressure that composers of previous centuries never had to live with. Yeah, it's something we said on the, the pod before, kind of the, the amount of new writing, the amount of new opera that was kind of coming out in the... You know, especially the kind of the nineteenth century, as you say, you'd have kind of you know kind of multiple new ones a week, especially in kind of Germany. Absolutely, I mean the number of operas that were composed that we wouldn't dream of going back and reviving, but they were there were hundreds, and and also in Italy, you know, Donizetti is writing two or three a year, and he's not the only one. There are mm. there are you know minor composers who are also writing at a furious rate. So we're very lucky that we can now go back and, and harvest off the, the cream of that. But we only get the cream because there was quite so much. So much. To, absolutely. You know, it's just the same argument we've made before about kind of female composers, that if we had the same number of female composers writing <laughs> operas as male composers, you know, you could have 99 fail and kind of one come absolutely. through. Absolutely. That, kind that, of that freedom to fail has been yeah. at the heart of of the development of music and and that's you you can't possibly know where the masterpiece is going to land yeah and you're quite right it's what we don't have anymore because there's such time and and cost involved in making these things we just don't have the same kind of you know amount of kind of stuff coming out and for us to go through quite right so all the very best with holland park uh, coming up at the moment and of course with eto's autumn season we'll have a link in the show notes to all of the dates so do catch uh, john um with seraglio and of course the silver lake as well by kurt weill uh, coming to a theater near you across the country uh, john thank you very much for joining us thank you John is currently conducting Il Sorghetto di Susanna at Opera Holland Park until the 3rd of August, which has been receiving rave reviews. Um, I'm not sure if there are any tickets remaining, but but do try and pop on the Opera Holland Park website and see if there are, um, I think it's five stars across the board. So so congratulations to John. Um, and English Touring Opera's new season opens at the Hackney Empire on the 4th of October. Uh, now, Emma, I know you've done your fair bit of um, touring in, in your time. What, what do you enjoy and not enjoy about the touring life? <laughs> Um, so enjoyment, uh, you get to, you get to go to um, parts of parts of the country that I wouldn't normally wouldn't think of going to. Um, one of the best tours I've done um, in my career was a small scale education production, and we went to lots of these gorgeous theatres dotted all over the country. I think there was a, a sequence of three days where um, I started in Poole. And then the next day was in Harrogate, and then the day after was in Canterbury. Um, so very good oh, planning. Oh, Harrogate and yeah. Canterbury, three <laughs> <Wow>. days. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, that was that was an interesting one. Um, and yes, yeah, so you get and you get to see these lovely lovely spaces. Um, generally, um, the the staff of these touring theatres are, are really really lovely. Mm. Um, I'm very fortunate as well in that I. Um, Lots of various either school friends or uni friends seem to be kind of dotted all over the country. So I get to go and see people, which is always lovely, um, and generally get, um, you know, go out for like fabulous, fabulous meals. Um, so that's, there's definitely a lot to be said for the touring life is that you get to kind of, you get to go out of your own, your own sphere. Um, I'm a little bit London centric at the moment, um, but prior to that, I lived in Leeds for a very long time. Um, so it's always nice to kind of go and see in a different part, different part of the country. Um, the bad, I mean, the bad things, you know, uh, being away from home is is becoming more and more. Um, I think when you're when you're younger and you have fewer ties, um, the touring life is is very can be seen very glamorous. Um, but then I think as you get older, um, obviously I'm talking as well as a very new mother is the um, you know, you kind of you want your creature comforts and, and being at home 
Um, I've been very fortunate, actually. I've not, I've not stayed in any, any shocking digs ever, <laughs> but I'm sure that is in my future. Um, and that can definitely, if you've had a really bad night's sleep, and then you have to go and um, go and go and text something for the millionth time. And then in my in my profession as generally as an assistant director, then going to have to watch something for the millionth time. That can lead to not the most fun part of the job. Yeah, um, and I don't think yeah. as an audience as an audience member, obviously, you know, you, you you turn up to a theatre expecting to see a completely polished, wonderful performance, and you know we, but you know there is so much um, pressure and obviously skill involved, and and you kind of touring artists that you have to get into a venue you've maybe got as John was saying in his interview an hour to sort of work out yeah. where you are and, and, and how everything fits yeah. in and then you're supposed to deliver at 110 percent mm. that that evening you know that's not just the singers but the musicians it's the technical team it's all of that you know you as an audience member you you don't consider all of those yeah. sorts of things you're just sitting quite happily. Oh, precisely, yeah. yeah. I've paid my 20 quid. I'll now have, yeah. While, while the principal's lost the way to the stage from the dressing room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, the orchestra doesn't all fit, so the timpanist is yeah. actually out the back yeah. and, you know, is, uh, they've got a door open. Um, uh, yeah, so really interesting uh, conversation with, uh, with, with, with John there. Do check out English Touring Opera's uh, new season. Now, my next agenda item says, opera is stuck in a racist, sexist past discuss um now th this is this is nothing new i think we all know the problems with the repertoire but there have been a few things this month um which have really kind of pushed this up the agenda um first off we had a letter signed by 190 artists in australia um demanding the removal of gender bias sexism and dramatized acts of violence against women in opera just yesterday the soprano tamara wilson took to instagram to say that she's decided to reject the putting on of blackface as aida in verona which has been going on for the past 103 years um, she undertook one performance in full makeup and then decided that she didn't want to wear it anymore um, and the theater agreed to her demands um, we've also had the opening of a new magic flute at glyndebourne by andre barbe and ronnie duque um, who have consciously created various ways to get around the opera's potential misogyny um, and racism um, Helen, we know there are clear problems mm. in the repertoire, especially to, to modern audiences. Why do we keep going back to Butterfly, Turandot, <laughs> Carmen? Why is, is Blackface, you know, we mentioned Verona, but uh, Natrebko last month, yeah, I think, that's posted right. that's a, a picture. Yeah, there was the we picture, still have Otellos at the major opera houses Who, yeah. In, yeah. in Blackface. Why do we keep doing it if we have such a problem with it? <sighs> it's a bit... <laughs> that's a, it's a difficult question, isn't it? And and it's kind of this. I think one of the classic things about obviously these pieces of of art were were of their time, so the nature of art it does reflect the societies and the social norms that are of the time. So, in a way, they are historical pieces. But I guess you're saying, well, why do we keep revisiting them? But then we're into the whole thing about the stranglehold that the canon has on anything mm. that's performed, wh whether that's opera. Or, or symphonic repertoire um, and then you're kind of the only thing that I would say is just kind of think about this I don't know if anyone's watched The Handmaid's Tale yes. and, and, yeah, <laughs> yeah thankfully someone said yeah David's going no um, and in a way the only thing I would say when when we look at these operas where there are these difficult issues that you know are not acceptable it does give us an opportunity to reinforce the fact that we've made a lot of social progress but that you know we it's been hard hard won hard fought and that we need to not lose sight of that you know almost to remind us to value the personal freedoms that we've gained um 
And I think the the other problem then coming out to the music, and you know, we know Wagner is problematic. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of um, a lot of our composers have had problematic lives, and it's this classical th- classic discussion, isn't it, that actually, it, unfortunately, the art can still be amazing even if the person and their moral standpoint isn't. And the reality is, some of the operas that do get revisited, part of the reason is the music's fantastic, and the music stands on its own, even if mm. even if the plot lines are are you know unsavoury. I mean, that's a really interesting point you make there about Wagner, and we all know he had some rather um, yeah. unsympathetic opinions. Yeah. Uh, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about a lot last month with um, some of the funders of the arts, that we don't agree with what they kind of do to make the yeah. the, the money, and should that be a, a problem for us? I mean, actually, there's a question there for someone like Wagner. If that's kind of how you feel about who's funding the art, should we also be kind of thinking about those people that were making it as well you know i think that's mm. a that's an open yeah. an open question i think from from my point of view i've been interested to get your take on this emma particularly with the kind of the the directorial hat on um is that i don't mm. have a problem with there being problems uh, in in these in these operas but for me the way to do it is not as as kind of barbe and, and duque have done which is uh, trying to find various ways to get around them but actually just confront them and as you said it's mm. looking at the past is a great way to see where we've come and where opinions yeah. are, are now. I mean, what, what's your kind of approach, Emma, when you look at some of these operas that you're working on and think there are challenging <laughs> subjects here which don't mm. seem to kind of chime with 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 us today? Um, I think um, a director can do can do lots of things, um, and definitely if you if you set something in the era that it was that it was written, just exactly as Helen said, you can then use that as a way to reflect on hopefully how much we have changed as a society or, or the change that still needs to occur. Um, I, I think I have more of a problem if you were to set something and basically, and th- there's the problem isn't that if you're putting something on stage, are you then as the director, or as the, as the writer, are you then automatically saying, and this is my worldview as well? Or are yep. you saying mm. this is a worldview, not necessarily one that I agree with. And it's finding that, finding that line um, for a director, it is. You're right, David. There is problems aren't necessarily a bad thing. It's how you tackle them. Um, where I do draw the line, I must say, is um, if you put if you if you cast a white soprano as Aida and then put her in blackface, that's just a, that's yeah. just a no. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I can't believe I have to say that in 2019. I know, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I think it's as we were saying, you know, before that actually, there's uh, one of the great things about opera is that we we do have to suspend our imaginations. A because people are singing, which is uh, <laughs> which inherently <laughs> is not true to life. Unfortunately, how much I would love that to be the way we interact with each other. Oh, it happens in Lancashire all the time. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> as you go on your walks, I'm you sure. Do, you do, yeah. Yeah. No, um, but you know, we can have we can have. Um, you know, uh, uh, elderly, portly gentlemen playing young romantic lovers, and we sort of accept it. You know, we can have, you know, let's let's have, you know, kind of a racially blind casting. You know, why shouldn't we have a black Iago? Why shouldn't we have a, yeah. a, a white? You know, almost kind of that that sort of way is great. I completely agree. That there's there's no need to put the the makeup on to kind of play those characters. Yeah. There's something about opera where we suspend that anyway. Um, I think more my issue is when we get into actual kind of the yeah, the, kind of the nuts and bolts of what the 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 plot is and actually why don't we just you know kind of confront these issues as, as kind of I said, um, so we've we you know there's a problem with the the old repertoire is is the answer Helen to create new repertoire to try and well, replace it or what, well, what's the answer if, if we look at it there is the whole issue of how do we get people actively going to new opera 
and new pieces without being scared. Um, but they, but also, if, if we look at it from a maths basis, the harsh reality is there's no way we could create enough work fast enough um, to replace it and also to be financially viable, which is a horrible thing to say, but that's one issue. You kind of hope it will improve that we will get a, more of a balance of works just with the natural thing of the the quality work that's being done now will stand the test of time and become part of the, the canon, as it were. Yeah. But I guess it's hard when we're right in this here and, here and now point because obviously we don't quite know where it's going to happen. Mm. I think to finish on this, Emma, again, one of the reasons why this has kind of been pushed up the agenda is the idea that because of opera's... Um, slightly old-fashioned, I suppose, mm. kind of a plots yeah. and, and ways of presenting yeah. it. Actually, this is a problem for new, younger, future audiences, That's, that yeah. reliance on the old rep, which doesn't align with a younger generation sort of mm. worldviews, is going to be a, a problem. Is, is that a, a, a view that, that you would share, Emma? Yes, I, I think that um, hopefully, again, in I'd love for us not to be having this conversation in the next week, but I think it's probably going to be more like hopefully in the next decade or so. Um, just things will shift and will continue to shift. And as long as we keep calling out when um, these things happen. So I know, uh, so for example, you know, Ananda Trebko, I think kind of yeah. got herself into a bit of a bit of hot water um, for her Instagram post last, last month. Um, and actually it's just having, just there are, there are having faith that there are enough um, people out there who will who will call things out, and that slowly, you know, that the the, um, the weight will shift, and we will be in a much better place than we are. Um, I mean, we for started we was already in a much better place than we were about a decade ago, and it's just kind of keeping on, keeping on, really. Yeah. One, one just to just go off piece again. One interesting thing is if you look at um, music theatre and how successful that is being in bringing in new audiences. I, I kind of think there must be some tricks we're missing uh, as people who, who really care about opera and passionate about it because, you know, musical theatre is exceptionally successful at creating new shows um, that then go on to be successful. And I'd, I'd just love to explore, it's not probably now for now, but there's got to be something there that we could look at and what's different i mean i know there will be differences yeah i mean i think if we look at musical theater um if you look at the, the big musical hits of the mm. recent recent times they fall down two camps one is disney yeah um formulaic basically formulaic yeah. stories that people really know but actually quite a good a fairly decent often kind of quite kind of moral di- diverse cast of characters yeah. great song things yeah. people know and hook onto. and again a lot of what opera was for hundreds of years is things that people knew and could hook on to that's it yeah. Shakespeare and opera um, and the other half are things that are embracing new musical styles which are popular with people mm. things like Hamilton yeah things yeah. that tell stories in more diverse ways things that align more with popular culture things like Book of Mormon Avenue yeah. Q those those kind of works that really speak to uh, um, a particular way of kind of looking at the world it's just it's just much easier for it to kind of move with the times and embrace more influences I have to be careful what... Well, I'm not going to be careful what I say because we're here to try and... Because we all love opera. But unfortunately, contemporary, for a lot of people, is a scary word. So mm. it's even even in the marketing, you know, it's almost like if you market things in a certain way, people will come and then get them in the door and they'll hopefully like it. I think sometimes even seeing the the word contemporary, people immediately say... Say fast. What I'm saying is, if we said, "Oh, we've got a contemporary piece of musical theatre," everyone would be like, "Oh, great! It's hot off the press." We say we've got a contemporary opera, and some, oh, you know, your traditional or the people who do go to opera but enjoy going, might, oh, I'm not sure. Mm. So 
it's really interesting, I think, the whole packaging of, of what opera does. Yeah, well, this is we've been discussing today with, with My Fair Lady is that, you you know, there's there's such a big line between those two worlds, isn't there? You're, you're doing an opera. If you're an opera company doing a musical, yeah. that is an opera company doing a musical. It's, cool. yeah, it's, I, not, yeah. it's not sort of part of your season, is it? It's kind of the this it, fun thing that yeah. you're doing that's that's almost kind of separate. And as you said, you know, you... you you're going to see a musical, you're tuned into what that's going to be. You're going to see an opera, you're tuned into what mm, you're kind of expecting yeah. to, to hear there. So there's such a thick line between those two worlds. Um, and I'm sure that audiences could cross over. But it, it's yeah. a barrier that seems insurmountable. Yeah, and if we could understand that barrier, it would be great because obviously the, the music theatre coffers are just ringing. And also, for me, I always find it... Because re- I do music theatre and you know, I love doing it. And for me, it doesn't matter what I'm working on. You've got the score and you want it to be as good as possible... And you yeah. want the story to be the, to be engaging. It's really the exactly the same process. In terms of kind of talking about how opera can kind of get through to to younger audiences and through into the mainstream, there have been two interesting examples over the past month. One is um, the uh, countertenor Kangwin Justin Kim, who I think is is just fantastic. I mean, he's I, I would say he's almost kind of unique among opera singers in being incredibly. And I'm going to use a very not trendy word, but very trendy. Um, he's a K-pop loving, flamboyant, <laughs> yeah. young, openly gay countertenor who, as well as having an amazing kind of social media profile and ability to kind of reach different audiences, is also an absolutely mm. astounding singer. Yeah. Um, he yeah. has mm. just finished as Carabino um, at the Royal Opera House's Figaro. Astonishing the Opera House, I've had a countertenor doing Carabino, <laughs> but it was so refreshing as well as being this kind of great um, presence, Kangmin also has the alter ego of um, Kim Chilia Bartoli, the Fantastic. drag Chichilia Bartoli, which is a, it's a loving homage to Chichilia. But again, it, one of the reasons why it works so great, look it's it up amazing. on YouTube, is that he is a great performer. Yeah. Um, but he seems almost kind of unique to me in terms of being a certain um, a profile, a certain type of person that other opera singers aren't. And that's not that's not saying that opera singers should should suddenly start being k-pop loving yeah. <laughs> you know kind of vivian westwood wearing sort of you know um personalities but he just seems really quite exciting in that regard um a- another example very different um, but another example of kind of a singer really kind of making more of a, a public profile for herself is um daniel denise um who we often mention um on the podcast has been a lot more broadcasting work recently um had a big splashy feature in the daily mail about her life at, at glyndebourne and um, but again kind of reaching across the aisle as such to to find a different audience i mean emma do you, do you think it's the job of singers to kind of help us bring in new audiences to help, kind of help us reach um new people to bridge the divide into kind of the the mainstream or should we just let singers get on with their jobs no i i, I think if um if you love a singer then you will then probably want to go and see them in anything and that is a really good way of getting people getting people in the door um i know there are various um uh, film film personalities and TV personalities. If I see that they are in something, I am more likely to be interested in it than if yeah. I didn't know they were in it and just just you know probably wouldn't probably wouldn't come across it. Um, so yes, and I think um, what's so wonderful about um, Justin is that what he does when he does his alter ego is clearly from a place of love. Um, and there's a I don't know if you've seen, but there is a small interview with him on the Royal Opera House's YouTube. Uh, where he talks about how he's actually met Cecilia Bartoli <laughs> and she greeted him as her sister, which is just gorgeous. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so I think, yeah, and I'm now, you know, I, up until about a month ago before he was in 
before he was in the Figaro, you know, I'd never heard of him. And now I'm like, well, what, what are you doing next? Can I go and see it? I'd love to see you on stage. Mm. But again, um, he's, he's the sort of person that you want to kind of follow on social media and things as well, isn't he? I, I think, yeah, well, I actually saw the live screen um, and there was the whole kind of previews and interesting. And they did show the uh, Kimchilia Bartley. I, I, it was uh, it's amazing you know when you you have to pick your jaw up off the floor because it was so good um but maybe part of the reason people like him is he is just like or oh, hate this word but i'm going to use it authentic mm. you know mm-hmm. he's not doing he's not being that person to for his, that is who he is yeah. and and almost you you can feel that and you know, I, I really enjoyed. I mean, to be honest, I, I shouldn't say I hadn't really. I just turned up and watched it, and it was really refreshing. Then obviously you got the whole. Well, hang on. So usually it's a trouser roll, <laughs> um, and then the whole confusion thing. So it was, that was an interesting thing. And again, we're actually talking about it, aren't we? That's got to be a good yeah. thing. Yeah, I, I think it's quite interesting. I think the reason why I mentioned this debate is that we we mentioned a few months ago about Andre Previn, obviously kind of sadly mm. died. But you know, when he yeah. was on the Malcolm and Wise show. <laughs> Can you, yeah. can you can you imagine in this day and age, um, I don't know, Antonio Papano being on Anton Deck's Saturday Night Takeaway? You know, that's that, kind of what that's, we're... Yeah, that's it's just, an interesting point. There's, there's that. a kind of a certain kind of crossover that we just don't... That Daniel Denise almost is sort of a person doing that. But even someone like Bryn Terfel, who I think has been like mm. a pretty mm. mainstream star, no one knows who Bryn Terfel is really outside of, of opera. So it's, I think it's just interesting, and I think it, you know, it's interesting as well. This month we've, we've got the Pavarotti film in cinemas. Mm. Again, he's really one of the last generation of opera uh, singers yeah. who the general public would also know. You are, you go on the street and ask someone to name an opera singer. Pa- Pavarotti's probably the name. But that again, come out. again, partly the massive. As you're not going to say three tenors. Ninety nine. The nineteen ninety World Cup was such a big World yeah. Cup that kind of helped. So just you were just talking about Daniel Denise and actually and Bryn, who's obviously done a lot of the crossover into Sweeney's and things like that. But actually, um, I saw that uh, Daniel Denise is going to sing at the Oral Albert Hall with Alfie Bow, who's a huge mm. like son of Lancashire, actually very close to the farm coast where I live. I thought that was really interesting that she's going to they're going to do songs from the shows plus some opera, and I think that'll be interesting given. It's interesting. She's probably one of the people who could stand with him, and that will be interesting to see where that goes. Mm, and obviously, she just yeah. finished in Man of La Mancha in the West End as well. Yeah. Again, yeah. at the the Coliseum, so there's, there's yeah. a certain kind of opera yeah. bridge bridge yeah. there. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's just interesting this kind of subject of, of where opera singers have gone in the in the public sort of. Co- but, but interesting, if you if if um, I think there was an interview somewhere. I think it's a classic FM one. You can find it online, and she does talk about herself, and she says. She feels that she's got a, a not a duty, but she's passionate about talking about opera, and she really wants to get people in. And she actually she said it. That's why I just said it because I heard it is if we get them through the door, the great music and the great show will speak for itself. Yeah, we'll keep them there. Yeah. And she also did say that part of the she feels she got a rose because she doesn't look like the normal. She says, you know, I've I'm mixed race and I'm a woman, um, and I, you know, she's an American now living in, in a country house. She's kind of got a, a unique vibe. And actually, she's recognised she can actually use that for, for the good of opera. And I guess it, it boils down to people who've got that um, passion to to do that as well as, you know, the hard job of just actually singing and being under that amount of pressure because your voice is looked at and listened to in such intense scrutiny. Yeah, and I, I think uh, Daniel Denise as well, being someone who is is really comfortable in the public limelight as you mm. said it also kind of comes from the fact that she's a little not different she's a little bit kind of different looking from what you think from an opera singer i think yeah. and she recognizes that yeah and is, but is, yeah going back to that daily mail article the um <laughs> yeah 
Yes, an ambitious American with boundless energy, not to mention those sex bomb looks, is the direct quote from the Daily Mail. So, I, I, Or can I, am I allowed to say, yeah, but it is the Daily Mail that might get caught. Yes, but, but, in, <laughs> but in terms of actually how you reach over, it's, it's quite sad. But I suppose someone like Danielle Denise, with the way that she mm, looks, is kind of a way that... And that she's in the Glime, but she's an American living in the it's very, country yeah, house. That, exactly, there's something yeah. about that, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, a bit like Megan kind of marrying into the Roth. It's a little bit of that sort of like... Glamour. Exoticism. Yeah. Oh, now we're getting into opera's orientalism. Yeah, there you Let's go. get away from this yeah. subject very quickly. <laughs> Justin, uh, who was, uh, say, the Caribbean of the Royal Opera House figure, was on the big screens. Um, it's also still on Opera Vision, so do catch that performance. I was fortunate enough, actually, to be in... Um, in Covent Garden to see one of the performances and he's he's Ooh. fantastic on the stage right. as he is on the screen. Uh, just following on from that, we mentioned last month that there have been um, climate change protests at some of the Royal Opera House's big screen ballet performances sponsored by BP. Uh, we wondered if those would extend to the opera big screen performances as well, and they certainly did. Uh, the pressure group Extinction Rebellion staging a die-in at the Royal Opera House during their big screen performance of Carmen. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to see how long this Royal Opera House BP uh, partnership lasts, and indeed if it doesn't last, whether someone will pick up the baton and whether we still have the big screen performances and to finish our news for this month uh, the rather lovely story of uh, the eccentric english gentleman paul atkins <laughs> who is hoping to raise 90 million euros to rebuild the world's first public opera house in venice complete with era appropriate stage machinery i don't know if either of you or any of you listeners saw the vna um opera exhibition about uh, a year ago i think um but there they had a, a working model um scale down model obviously right. of a of a kind of a, um, an old opera theatre with, you could see the workings of how the kind of old school machinery works. Wow. You think of all these great original sort of handle operas where sea monsters rose and right. shit and all that, you know, it's yeah. that sort of stuff. So Paul's hoping to go all out and recreate um, this theatre in Venice, which was uh, demolished in 1812 um, and say, hoping to raise the 90 million euros to make it happen. Helen, would you make the trip to, to Venice if uh, Paul's dream became a reality? Um, I'd probably go to Venice anyway. <laughs> just, just if, it, you know, if, he, if he needed me to go and come and check it out. I think it's a really interesting project. It reminded me of um, The Globe, yeah. which when that first it's started, very similar sort every, of everybody kind of laughed at, was it Sam Wanamaker, and said, oh, it's never mm. going to happen. And it's there, it's, it's successful, it's part of the landscape in London. I think I think it's a really interesting idea. It's a lot of money, ninety million. I kind of obviously look at that figure and think, which euros, but near enough sterling. Um, and I, I I was actually really intrigued about the fact that it was the effects of dragons um, apparently belching fire because I'd love to see how they did that in the uh, you know pre CGI you know and things <laughs> like that. Um, I'm interested. I think it'd be interesting to see the operas in that space. Um, because obviously the scale of opera's totally changed with Wagner and all the rest of it. It'd be interesting to see what the the pieces sounded like in in that. I mean, this is me being a bit nerdy and, you know, all musicological. Um, but given, I think I read something, it's 20 metres by 30 metres, so it's, it's absolutely small. tiny. So yeah. so oh. me being a little bit commercial, he's got to find 90 mil to build it, but then actually he's not he's ever, ever going to be able to sell yeah. enough well, tickets. We, we might or, want to go, but can we afford to go? Yeah, will because be the next if you do the maths on that, the tickets are going to be huge. I think it's, I think it's a, I think you need these people who've got these um, niche visions to do these things. You know, there's there's room for everywhere. It's kind of, I think you've said this before, of, of, that, you know, I think it's really important, like Royal Opera House, 
we're going to basically have the best of the best, the gold standard. I think it's important we've got things like this. And this is another aspect of opera life or cultural life that, that people are looking at little bits of culture that they're interested in. I think it is important, but, you know, 90 million, still a lot of money. But I'm probably just looking at that figure and thinking <laughs> what we could do, what you well, could do with that. It'll get you an Eddie Hazard, won't it? Maybe. So um, it's one for your football fans out there. Um, so good luck to Paul. It sounds it sounds great fun. Um, and if he wants to come over here to the UK and uh, and and build one, I would. You're you're let in. I'd be very keen <laughs> to to go and have a look. We've got a very short What's on Radio, TV and Film section this month. Uh, opera scenes have gone on holiday when it comes to, to, to broadcast. Um, at film, I mentioned the Pavarotti documentary is out and about in certain uh, screens across the UK. Glyndebourne's Magic Flute will be uh, at cinemas on the 4th of August. Uh, on radio, again, Glyndebourne's Flute from the Proms will be broadcast on the 27th. Um, and online, uh, on television, uh, you can catch the final rounds of the Operalia competition, Placido Domingo's singing competition, this year coming from Prague. Um, you can watch that on Medici.tv. We'll have a special pod coming out in a few days' time covering the final, which features uh, one of our favourite sopranos, we make no bones about it, Adriana Gonzalez, um, who we had on a couple <laughs> oh, of weeks yeah. ago. She's got through to the final of the main competition and the Zarzuela competition, so good luck, Adriana. <laughs> We'll be cheering for you and we'll be covering the final in a special pod in a couple of days' time. Now, before we get on to, um, I know what Helen and Emma are looking forward to this month's opera quiz. <laughs> we are um, looking forward to it, aren't we, We're going to make the case for a hidden gem opera. Every month we make the case for uh, an opera which is very rarely heard but we think deserves a much wider hearing. And I'm going to ask Helen to make the case for an opera this month. Right, well, the case is it's related to um, the musical confusion, Shakespeare and Opera Project, because as part of that project I've been kind of uh, looking into different operas that match um, the players who are interested in. And one of the plays we're, we're doing, we're looking at, was Tame with the Shrew, again, because we've got, we have to tell you, we're going to do some Kiss Me Kate. So I was quite interested to see what other Tame with the Shrews were around there. Um, and I've got to be honest, came up, found this um, opera by Goetz, a German composer. Um, sadly, he only lived about th- till he was 36, but he created um, this opera, obviously based on Tame of the Shrew. And again, I, I just was listening to it. I mean, this is the joy of Spotify these days. What you can find, I also could find a score, you know, a few, few searches and there I am with the dots in front of me. And again, straight away, I was thinking, wow, 1874 it's written, so it's a little bit before um, Merry Widow, but it's without annoying David. It sounds <laughs> lovely. It's got lovely tuneful melodies, but it's got that drama of opera. And again, I was thinking, how has this not made the cut when things like, you know, not Merry Widow is bad at all, but for me, on the first listen, it sounds really interesting. And again, it was a massive hit in its day not just in Germany, but in in the Europe, in Europe and um, the US. And I do wonder, maybe because he died when he was 36, he didn't have a chance to cement or push other companies to take it on. And that then leads you to the whole thing about, well, w- what are the key factors that make these pieces succeed? And it is probably down to things that are nothing to do with music, but practicalities of, of having a producer who believed in you, having a theatre that believed in you. Um, and things like that that are maybe not as clear cut and we don't, you know, get lost in the mists of history. Yeah, well, good case made there for Taming of the Shrew. And before we have our quiz, let's listen to a bit of Gert's Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> 
And finally, we're about to head into battle with the monthly opera quiz. I'm uh, mixing it up once again. Uh, so this month, please, Helen and Emma. We're going to have five rounds. Right. I've got oh, the cast. I think it's very serious, isn't it? <laughs> I'm writing this down, Emma. I've got the cast of characters for five different operas. Taking one opera at a time, I'm going to read out the roles, starting with the smallest role first. When you think you know the opera, you need to shout right, out. Right. You can have shout out the answer or shout, shout out. Just shout out stop or stop. Okay. Fine or something. <laughs> I like Fine. I like Fine. Um, so when you think you know the opera, um, shout out and give me um, your guess. If the guess is wrong, you only get one guess per opera. Okay. So first to three, best of five. Oh God, I, my, is your heart going? A little Emma. bit, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> I've gone. I'm. I've not gone. Very hard, but I've not gone very easy. Right. So I'm not going for like you know, Don Giovanni, where we start with Mazzetto or something. Right. You know, so it's good a little right. bit, a little bit harder than that. Okay, okay. So here's the first opera. Shout out when you think you know what it is. <clears throat> so starting from the smallest role. A shepherd boy. A jailer. Stop. Yep. Tosca. It's Tosca. One oh, to well Emma. Done. Very, very good. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna like put, I'm gonna say it's because obviously I, w- I end up not having to worry about what these minor people are doing because uh, you, you know have to so, worry about what they're singing. Though, yeah, but you, usually they're not singing that much, so they kind of just get shuffled around. That's imp- that's imp- so that's I'm just doing my get out now. That's very impressive work. <laughs> Moving on to the next, this has got a real big cast of characters. <clears throat> a flautist, a cook, a hairdresser, a scholar, and a widow. Four waiters. Are we in opera? We're definitely in opera. Okay. Four lackeys. An innkeeper. A police inspector. A vendor of pets. What? A milliner. Three. I think I know this. Is it Manon? It's not Manon. Okay. I mean, I haven't checked, but I'm going to hopefully guess that this opera and Manon don't have exactly (laughs) the same cast of, of characters. I'm going to continue. I don't think I'm going to get this, but well, keep you can, going. you can wait until you've got all the cast members if you want. Go on, keep going. It starts to get a little bit easier now. The Marshallins major domo. Stop. Ah, oh, <laughs> Yeah. You were, you were one too early there, Emma. Yes, go. So um, it's gone out of my head. The Strauss one, um, Rose and Cavalier. It's Rose and Cavalier. Honestly, it's so interesting. I'd, that, you, that, you, that is an opera with a huge cast of characters. I know, but I kind of you kind of don't re- you don't realise because when you start saying about the lackeys, it kind of went through my head of. Um, Randomly, um, half a sixpence when you've got, or something like Hello Dolly. That's why I get, are you sure it's opera where there's like often like ran, so many waiters? That's my four waiters. Are there really four waiters? Oh, Emma, there must be. Well, there we are. One all. Um, the pronunciation okay. police are going to love me for this next mm. one coming up, so um, <clears throat> bear that in mind. Damigella, Mercurio, Littore. Drusilla, Valletto, Nutrici, 
Seneca. Stop. Yes. Coronation of Papaya. It certainly is. Uh, very good. I was well going to say, Emma, better get this one. I was about to say, didn't you direct that? that yeah, so, yeah. I was just about to move yeah. on to, again, the easier ones, Arnalta, Atone, etc., etc. Um, two, one, very good. Next up, a smaller cast of characters right. for this particular one. <clears throat> Elisa. Normano. Lord Arturo Booklaw. Raimondo Bidabont. Sir Edgardo de Ravenswood. Stop. Is it Lucia? It is Lucia. Congratulations <laughs> to Emma. Three well, one. It's fine. I can I can hang that. I, I note to self, start paying more attention to the smaller characters. But but some of these people do nothing for me. That's I don't mean that they do nothing, <laughs> but obviously they, they kind of just put, put I guess you've got the problem of where they go on stage. Yeah. Whereas I'm often yeah. just yeah, they don't have to do Is much there thing. one line acceptable? Yeah, move on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um I'll very quickly give you the the, the last one. Cool. Uh, two prisoners. Don Fernando, Don Pizarro, Yaquino, Marceline, Rocco, uh, yeah. Leonore, yeah. Floristan. Oh, yeah, for the, yeah. Yeah, I didn't even say stop. Congratulations. I think that went quite well. I, yeah, I don't feel I've made been looks totally stupid. And, and, and congratulations, Emma. I was impressed with both of you, but especially Emma and, I know, and Tosca. Definitely. I mean, yeah, that was quite... Full yeah. marks. Well done. And well done to you at home. I'm sure as soon as I said lackeys, you were going, stop. Rose we noted it. So congratulations to both of you. Um, thank you both very much for, for joining me uh, this month. Thank you, Helen. No, it's been a real pleasure. It's uh, nice to sit around and chat about all things opera. All things opera. Uh, yeah, it's been fun. Thank <laughs> you for inviting me. Uh, not at all. And thank you very much, uh, Emma. Obviously very busy at the moment. So thank you for finding the time. No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me back. Um, and Helen, best of luck for musical confusion. It sounds yes, absolutely you. fantastic. Yeah, well, ho hopefully I'll meet you in person one day. But <laughs> yeah. you, you kind of, it's interesting. You kind of get used to this meeting people electronically more and more. And it's always very nice when you then finally meet the person. Meet person. Yeah, so all the best. <laughs> Lovely to meet you. In the thank ether. you very much as ever to our host here at Chapel FM. Thank you, listener. And we look forward to seeing all of you here at Chapel FM on Monday, the 26th of August two o'clock for a free and live opera cast recording. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>